Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In the 12th canto of Purgatory, Dante finds himself confronted with great works of art from artists such as Cimabue and Giotto, who he admired so much. The entire canto is an ode to these fantastic artists and the power of art to lead us through difficult times. He writes, What master of brush or chisel could have portrayed the shapes and outlines there, which would have filled with wonder a discerning mind? The dead seem dead and the living living. He marvels at the power of art, and the author's amphora necklace sort of mimics a vessel of ink and is a celebration of the way in which writing and art can be used as a means of catharsis for the reader and for the author. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so delighted to say that today we are in the studio of the absolutely sensational and highly acclaimed painter Flora Yuknovich. Since graduating from the prestigious City and Guilds of London Art School in 2017 and prior to that the Heatherly School of Fine Art here in London, Flora has gone on to exhibit widely, including at the likes of Victoria Miro, where she is soon to have an upcoming solo exhibition, as well as at Jerwood Gallery, Gask in the Czech Republic, Paraffin London and Leeds Art Gallery. She has also completed multiple residencies, including at Victoria Mira Venice and, of course, the Great Woman Artist Residency at Palazzo Monti. Flora's works are masterpieces, often large scale. The paintings adopt the language of the Rococo, reimagining the dynamism of works by 18th century artists such as Tiepolo, Boucher, Watteau, through a filter of contemporary cultural references, including film, food and consumerism as well as bringing classically inspired painterly traditions into a more consciously feminine and contemporary realm by featuring wisps of millennial pinks and purples. Variation is a driving force in Yuknovich's work, with her mark-making ranging from delicate flourishes to dramatic and gestural brushstrokes, heightening the rhythmic sensuality that plays throughout her ambitious compositions. 
existing in a constantly fluctuating state between abstraction and figuration, Yuknovich's paintings explore ideas surrounding dualities and multiplicities, transcending gendered painterly traditions whilst fusing high art with popular culture and intellect with intuition. In her upcoming exhibition, The Venice Paintings, she has drawn direct inspiration from the northern Italian town with the music of Vivaldi, the memoirs of Casanova, in addition to one of her key influences, Giovanni Battista Tiepolo, whose frescoes in the Calrezzo Nico Museum and the Chiesa Santa Maria she was able to study firsthand. Flora Yuknovich, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, Katie. I'm very good, thank you. Thank you so much for having us here in your fantastic studio. So, of course, as you know, I have been an avid, avid follower of your work for many years. We've worked together on a lot of occasions. Mm-hmm. And I have been in total awe of your work just ever since your graduation show back in 2017. I mean, this was such a kind of monumental moment. I think the whole of London were just surrounded by your paintings. It was an incredible time. As I mentioned, your works just completely fail to never blow anyone away. And as I mentioned earlier, your work is really known for adopting the language of the Rococo. And with that comes so much dramatism in your work, just for those who might not have been lucky like me to see your work and every single exhibition that you've done since your graduation, I'd love for you to start off by just telling us about your work, describe your work for us. I'm really interested in the Rococo and I'm always trying to capture something that feels distinctly Rococo in my paintings, but I want them to be, like you say, dynamic and they're sort of between abstract and figuration. I want them to feel art historical, but I want them to have the openness of abstraction. I think you definitely get that sense. I think, you know, when confronted with one, at first you're not quite sure what it is. Maybe it's a ceiling or maybe it's based on a kind of pate work or something. There's something it's quite narrative about it as well, would you say? Well, I think because I'm using these paintings that exist, I'm drawing on a lot of existing imagery, which I think because it's part of this big tradition of art history has a narrative kind of inherently within it. So when you're looking at it, it's quite easy to build narratives in. But I think the way that I use them is more kind of like symbols. It's more about the feeling of them. Absolutely. So with this in mind, you adopting all these traditions from the Rococo, it's fascinating because in a way, a lot of contemporary artists actually haven't tackled these giant historical subjects. What is it about the Rococo that you're drawn to? And also, when did you start becoming obsessed by it? I found a Fragonard book on my master's and it was from there that I became really obsessed with it. I think one of the things that draws me to it is how unfashionable it is and that it's a bit kitsch and over the top and I find that quite sort of funny and like it's a fun place to be in my studio all the time looking at those paintings and I think I'm really interested in the way it's influenced contemporary culture especially the way the languages we use to talk about women so I like that it's fun and it's playful and it's something that I can use to talk about things which are important to me. And so you know with this in mind you discovered Fragonard whilst you're on Masters which painting was it and how did it make you feel? It was the swing classic, classic. Yeah. <laughs> at the Wallace collection. Um, well, it was actually it was in a book first and then I went to see it at the Wallace collection but I didn't go for a while because I was quite embarrassed that I was so into it and so I just had my secret book that I would hide at the end of the day because I didn't want anyone to know but I'd seen it before it was familiar to me but for some reason it just felt different that time I looked at it it felt silly and fun and I really liked how playful it felt but then at the same time I think it was also that sense of it being so playful that made me feel embarrassed about it because it didn't feel serious on my master's, I had been looking a lot at like decorative designs and I'd been painting wallpaper designs just directly on the wall. And I think the idea of using painting to 
explore the decorative was something that I was sort of becoming more and more interested in. And that painting seemed to epitomize that mixture of high and low. And I hadn't realized at that stage that there was this kind of feminine aspect to all of the wallpapers and the looking at China patterns and things like that. And it was looking at that painting I began to understand and everything sort of fell into place a bit. So it's so interesting you should say about how the Rococo is feminine because, you know, when you actually look at all those names behind those paintings, yes, they're so feminine and sort of pink and kitschy in a way, but they're often by male artists. I think what interests me is the way that the aesthetic has become sort of a signifier for femininity sort of at a later stage. At the time, there was actually a lot of female patronage. So although the paintings were made by men, they were often made for the demands of women. And as it fell from fashion, everyone said that women were to blame. And what can you expect from women? They have such bad taste. And things. Um, <gasps> really? Yeah. Oh my and gosh. it's interesting you say pink because pink became very popular at the time. And I think that has sort of been bundled up and all of that has come to create this aesthetic that talks about women and has all of these associations which are not good associations attached to it. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting because I mean the Rococo, if you think about it in history, it was the sort of 18th century. Mm -hmm. So straight after that was neoclassicism and people yeah. like Jacques-Louis David who got rid of all that in a way. Yeah, it becomes very much about rationalism and the colours become much darker and women sort of disappear from the scene really. It became associated with this idea of like the old France that they wanted to get rid of. So, yeah. I mean, it really couldn't have been less popular during that time. Wow, that is so interesting. I'm also interested to know how does your process begin and how does it feed into exploring the Rococo? My process starts when I've seen something in and around London, which reminds me of something in the Rococo or has clearly derived from the Rococo in some way. And then exploring that idea is really what makes me want to start a painting. So when I'm in the studio, I'll get lots of different references and I'll put them down together and I'll use a sort of free association, pulling those two things that I've seen that have a similarity and then bringing in other elements and trying to build up something that feels like that feeling that I'm wanting to explore. And then I'll pick one source which feels like it's a strong Rococo trope. And then I'll make some studies of it. So I make these little studies, which are about postcard size on prime paper, just to try and understand the basic structure of the painting. And it's kind of about understanding the most essential elements that make it feel the way it feels. And from there, I then get an idea of the skeleton of a painting and I can scale that up. And it means that I can capture some sense of familiarity very early on. And then it frees me up to put in bits and take bits out and be quite flexible with the rest of the process, but it, it sort of is anchored in that original source painting and it keeps that sense of familiarity. Yeah, I love that. That explains whenever I go to your studio and you have so many images laid out. But I want to talk about your colour because in a way, and I'm sure we'll get onto the abstraction and figuration shortly, but your paintings do feel like this kaleidoscope of colour swept up. I mean, which colours do you specifically like to use in your work? Yeah, so I always work with the same colours. I love cadmiums, so their rich creaminess. And then I really like permanent rose, which I think has an amazing kind of zingy pink and just a variety. And then I always mix up my colours from that selection. And sometimes it's about matching it to like a reproduction, which is sort of the easiest way to do it. Absolutely. And kind of with this, maybe you don't think about the feeling of the viewer so much. Because the thing is, I'm looking at a picture of your incredible work, Butter Wouldn't Melt, which is on view right now at Leeds and it's just so overpowering it's like you know you've called it butter wouldn't melt and it's as though this I don't know ton of butter is just like lathering at you I mean they, they, in a way <laughs> you have to 
think about the feeling because they have such a sensation. Do you think about this idea of the sensation of your work? I think that's the thing. I'm sort of bringing together lots of references, but always I'll have some idea of a sensation that I want to capture that through. So with Butter Wouldn't Melt, I wanted it to be this kind of sploshy vortex of stuff. And it's something as basic as that, that, that I'll hold on to as an idea and I'll use that in the way that I paint. When it comes to people looking at it, yeah, I would like it to have, especially if it's something like a vortex. I was thinking about temptation and sort of sucking people in. So I yes. definitely wanted that there. And with this idea, you know, I think, like I was saying before, this idea of sort of lathering, it's so interesting you say a vortex as well. How do you want the paint to feel on the canvas? I think delicious. I love yeah. paint. I, <laughs> I find it the most thrilling, exciting stuff. And I think I like the idea of it being excessive and sort of luxuriating in it. And I hope that comes through on the surface. I think most of my ideas come from consumerism. And I think that's massively tied up with ideas of the feminine and women. I like the idea of foodiness. And I think there's something alluring about that. And also maybe a bit repugnant all at the same time. And I think that's the way I feel a bit about these paintings. And I think food is a good vehicle to talk about that. And it has the same connotations of excess that the Rococo has. Totally. This idea of consuming and in a way you it is though you're kind of consuming all these ice creams or creams or milkshakes or something one of your work is called a, a glass half full and, glass and, and a half a and glass and a half advert, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the fact that oh my gosh it's as though you're kind of drinking the liquid of these paintings yeah that was definitely what I wanted to feel with that painting and I think I had this word I just kept saying soft peaks soft peaks to myself while I was painting it that was the kind of sense that I wanted to get and then a glass and a half felt like a better title towards the end but yeah I do want it to have the fullness and of kind of a mouthful or something so you know with a work something like if all the world were jello you have these elements of these pink yogurty creams and these kind of milkshake style cakes and everything but then i feel like you have i mean first of all your use of kind of like spatial composition is just mind-blowing every single time i look at work it feels like it's something else but Sometimes at the back of your work, it's almost as though you have more washy areas. It feels drier. It feels more kind of on the surface. Why do you like to kind of play with the viewer like that? Well, I think it's a way of making the rich areas feel really rich. I think you need to have contrast just to set it off. And I am always playing with very different things, binaries. And I like that I might start with browns and then work towards something more fleshy and more pink. So, for example, one of your works that was in the show, If All the World Were Jello, I mean... Yes, you're getting these delicious aspects of the work, but also I'd love to ask about the title. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's from a vintage jelly advert and it's got this little man and he's got this huge spoon and he's sailing across a sea of cream, I think. And it just epitomised the idea of this little guy who's got this spoon and the whole world is for him to eat and consume. And that's what that painting felt a bit like to me. Yes, I love also how your titles always have these really interesting references. So I should add that this work was actually in the show that I organised last year at Victoria Mirror Gallery, which featured you, Caroline Walker and Maria Berrio. And I was so lucky to look at this work every day for six weeks because... Every time I really looked at it, I was just continuously moved by these limitless ways that you handle oil paint. I mean, the way that you just constantly keep it in this state of flux and movement and momentum. I mean, when did you start using oil paint? I started using oil paint when I trained as a portrait painter. And I think I love how malleable it is. And it's kind of gooiness it spreads really beautifully and I think what I'm trying to do uh, I want things to sort of morph in and out of figuration there isn't a more perfect material because it stays in flux for such a long time and you can sort of start 
with a figure and then drag it back out into abstraction or, or you can sort of use your hands and pull stuff into being more figurative. And I find paint so exciting, the potential of it. You can, you can thin it down and make it sloppy and it can move fast or you can make it really thick and sort of drag a brush through it so that a brush stroke stays and the color then is sort of veined through a stroke and then it sort of slows it right down. And I just find playing around with paint and its different possibilities one of the most exciting parts of making my work. And just to go back to these Rococo paintings, because like you said, they do blend abstraction and figuration. I'm interested to know as well, because obviously they all kind of have their own narrative stories. Are you wanting to kind of make people aware? So for example, this work, All the World, Bargello, or one of your recent works is warm and wet and wild. And this, <laughs> um, this is... I think probably your most incredible work. I mean, when I saw it in the studio, I was honestly blown away. And that I feel is really kind of figurative. First of all, what is this painting based on? And what is it that you're trying to say about that story now? So that painting, the title comes from the Katy Perry song, California Girls. And it's based on a mishmash of Fête Galant paintings and pastorals. And I was looking at kind of fruit as a metaphor for the female body. And I wanted it to be like this insanely fruity place where women are lounging around and just indulging in their own pleasure, like a paradise, I suppose, a sort of ridiculous paradise. I think with that one, it did end up being more figurative. It's not really a choice that I start out with necessarily. I'm bringing in stuff and pulling stuff out all the time. And sometimes figuration can feel too static. So that's one of the reasons I'll get rid of it and open it up to become more abstract. But yeah, that one just kind of stayed and it happened quite quickly. So I think the faster something happens, maybe the, the more figurative it stays. I love the idea that you're kind of like stretching something. There is this real element of pulling and pushing and squeezing with your work. You mentioned just now this idea of fête galant. I mean, can you expand on what this term means? Yeah, so it was a new genre that was created by Watto and is kind of the beginning of the Rococo era. And it's this sort of big gardens full of people in beautiful clothes all having parties. And it sort of slowly becomes more and more erotic. And when did you first discover what that was? I think it was the painting we just talked about, If All the World Were Jello. And that one was, I think, a great example of where the men look like they're really ready for it. And they're kind of like <laughs> leering at the women who look like they're a sort of buffet in the middle. And they're all wearing their pink dresses and they have these like little white sleeves that already look like cream cakes sitting around this pool. And so I wanted to play on that idea. So to go back to your beginnings as an artist, obviously you're a highly acclaimed painter now. I'd love to ask you, when did art kind of come into your life? Was it something that had always been there? I always enjoyed it, but my family aren't, we didn't like go to galleries all the time. My dad was in the Navy, so we moved around a bit and I ended up living in Rome for six months. And during that time, my mum really wanted to make sure we saw everything. So we went to the Sistine Chapel and we looked at all the, the churches. It was probably like nine. Okay. Um, and I think that stuck in my mind as sort of the first experience that I had of art that really blew me away. And I think it still sort of forms the basis of what I think of as art. And yeah. I think the work I make is sort of influenced by that quite Definitely. a lot still. And then I just liked it at school. It was just a place to play and have fun and try things out and not be wrong, I guess. What did you kind of study alongside in a way? Chemistry and biology. <laughs> So always just this kind of like scientific element in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't particularly interested in them. I just wanted to be in the art department all the time. And those were ones that I could just get the key stage book and just kind of cram the exams for those. Very good advice for budding artists at school. So afterwards, you went to Kingston, you did your foundation. I mean, how did you find that? I found it difficult at first, actually, because you're trying so much. It's quite hard to get your teeth into 
anything particularly. But then I settled on graphic design, which I actually really loved. And I think it's still quite important for the way I think about making my work. I really loved looking at words and the history of words and trying to work out why they mean what they mean. And then I got to the point where I was applying for university and I just missed painting so, so much. And that's when I thought I'd go and do a portrait painting course because it seemed like a good way just to explore paint and not much else. Yeah. And I mean, how was that for you? It was amazing. It was very traditional. We had a different tutor every three weeks who would teach us their own technique, which there were quite diverse techniques that we were taught and different combinations of colors for each setup. And I just learned lots of different approaches, which has been really useful to me. But ultimately, you're always painting a portrait just a head and shoulders against a colored backdrop in an art school setting. So I think it was then that I became so interested in paint because it became more about what the paint could do than any kind of depiction. It was more about working out how to make a paint feel fat, like a fat person yes, or feel yeah. thin. And that's sort of what has stayed the most, I think, in my practice. I think it's so interesting you should say that. I mean, I'm thinking just now of someone like Jenny Savile, the way that she paints flesh and actually having so much fun with it. Yeah, I mean, when I look at a Jenny Savile painting, the subject almost seems irrelevant to me yeah. because the paint is so fun. And I think maybe that's what's so interesting about it is that you're looking at something so horrific, but the paint is beautiful and it's sort of singing and dancing on the surface of this mutilated body. Absolutely. Do you find yourself using those sort of techniques and what those skills that you learned at portraiture school actually in your work now? Yeah, definitely. I think the things I choose to paint are quite often governed by the fact that the very first thing I think of is how will I paint them? And, and I have this kind of attraction to flesh and the body and form, I guess, rather than space. And I think it's been really useful for undoing things because I think working from the figure so much I have a familiarity with it now so I find it quite easy to kind of unlock it and abstract it in a way. And who were the kind of artists that you were looking at when you were studying? They were very different from the ones I look at now. Then <laughs> Freud, Auerbach. I think there was kind of an ethos of kind of tortured genius so I think that's probably <laughs> what I make what I make now probably is a complete like reaction against all of that training. I left Heatherly's with this like love of paint, but I just didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know where to put it. I did some self-portraits for a while that were just really ugly. And I went to City and Guilds having no idea what I was going to do, but I knew that I wanted to paint. And I think at first I just started reading and I was quite embarrassed about how little I knew because I'd just done stuff with my hands. It was really not an academic course, the portrait training. And I didn't paint for a while, I think because at art school it's quite sort of performative when you're making work. I think people are watching you yeah. make work. And then I decided that I needed to get on with something. And that's when I started doing the wallpaper things directly on the walls so that it was sort of out there and I had to commit to it. And I began looking a lot at high and low things and just trying out what would happen if I painted these things, which I had never really imagined being painted, having just looked at sort of Albach and things like that yeah. to paint like a Kath Kidston wallpaper seemed yeah. so like funny to me. <laughs> and I just wanted to see what would happen with my hand and, and sort of how it would come out I guess I think painting such an interesting one you know painting is this you know really kind of high form of art yeah well I'd found that actually it was all the sort of grandiosity of painting had made me enjoy painting less and less because I kept expecting it to do this wonderful thing and be sort of like an alchemy and transform into something amazing and I, like the fun had 
gone out of it a bit. So I think that's something that on, on my MA that I was always looking at, those grand myths that surround painting and undoing them and thinking about how the gesture can be something that's actually really cheap and fun. And it could be like a repeat pattern that feels gestural, has the dexterity of like action painting or something, but doesn't have all the kind of self-expression and the meaning and the kind of misery involved in it. Yeah, absolutely. But then I think it's interesting that you kind of challenge those kind of paintings in your work you're really taking on art history in a way and, and and almost kind of like reimagining it and they think that's why people are so drawn to your work is because you're seeing something that in a way feels so familiar it's like what you'd see at the national gallery or what you'd see at the wallace collection but it's in this completely kind of poppy kitsch very 21st century in a strange kind of way almost like digital there's a real kind of like not internet presence in your work but you can tell that it's 2020. It's this kind of familiarity that blends historical and the contemporary. Yeah. When I looked at the Fragonard paintings, I had that feeling of it being not part of art history. It felt more sort of playful and fun and part of the other stuff that I was looking at. You say about the digital thing, because I think that the Rococo has a lot in common with Instagram and all the revved up kind of stuff that we see online a lot today. So that's something I always want to hone in on is kind of this exaggerated too much and that's what painting feels like as well it's just this excess and this abundance so when you then discovered this book which had a fragonard in it on your masters then how did your work then change from this kind of wallpaper to these sort of giant canvases well i think because i'd been doing the wallpaper i had the idea of scale already and basically I'd had to paint over it as the next student moved in. So I was like, I should probably do that on canvas next time. Yeah. So I stretched up these massive canvases anyway. And then I just wanted to try and work out. Like I, I didn't really know why I felt so strange about that Fragonard book. And so I was just pulling bits out and putting them on this painting and seeing what would happen. Just so much clicked through the process of making that painting. And yeah, it was just, I think sometimes that happens. You make a work that is out of pure curiosity and it sends you off in a particular direction. Also, how do you find that your work has even evolved from your graduate show? Like I'm looking at work now, which is it's better down where it's wetter. And this work just got so much volume in it, but it also feels so different from the work now. How is it looking back on these works, even two years ago that you find are actually so different to your work now? I think things have become a bit more complex I think I'm using more references and it's become I think the work I graduated with was all just about the swing but then I think I understand the aesthetic as a whole more now and I can pull on it and pull it around and use it more easily I've been recently reading Angela Carter's fairy tales there's an amazing one called the bloody chamber which is a retelling of bluebeard and the language she uses is amazing she describes the man as a lily all the time but makes the lily seem kind of grotesque and talks about it like its petals are like cobra heads yeah it's yeah sort of there's a corporeality in the way she writes and I really like that way of taking something so fantastical and so the story of bluebeard is not really sweet but the other fairy tales she takes are quite like romantic ones normally but she sort of regrounds them and makes them kind of very human experiences to read because of the language she uses and I really connected to it when I read it because that's really what I want to do with paint is try and draw kind of beautiful whimsical stuff into a place where it's universal and relatable and to do with being in a body and things like that. That's really interesting because then you're, you know, the fact that it conjures these kind of beautiful, whimsical shapes and everything forms. Because also, can you talk a bit about how the Rococo is also kind of inspired contemporary culture in sort of cartoon ways as well? Yeah. I mean, I love Disney. So <laughs> I think that might have been one of the things that drew me to the Rococo is like the overlaps. <laughs> it's unlikely because it wasn't until that you pointed it out to me years ago, I think it was Pazzo Monti, yeah. that 
I suddenly just got that Beauty and the Beast is essentially like a Rococo painting. I'm interested in the way that the sort of princess idea is built up with the Rococo as its kind of key aesthetic. And I think there's so much wrong with the idea of telling little girls that the best thing they could be in life is a princess. Yes. Um, <laughs> and But but I, I also really love those films because I grew up with them. So I think you can see where the Rococo has inspired them in ones like Entangled. There are, the trees are taken from Fragonard's cycle in the Frick collection. Those amazing wow. kind of fluffy trees oh my God. Yeah. Um, are like directly used in the concept design for Tangled. And then the swing is used in numerous I mean, it's in Frozen. It's in um, really Tangled as well. I think it's clear that it's there. I don't know whether it's a conscious thing or whether it's just become so much part of the kind of princess aesthetic so that it's just like natural that you'd use it. But I think it's so funny if you look at something like the Palace of Versailles, it's as though it's like a Disney palace in a way. It's this kind of Rococo cartoonish, hilariously excessive and grand place. But I know that, you know, ceilings also play a kind of big role in your work. And actually they create like a sort of completely different dynamic and spatial awareness than the other paintings. You feel like as though you're kind of tunneled into them rather than these kind of yogurty shapes and wisps and sort of sensualities are kind of coming at you. You feel very much like you're going in. How is it painting ceilings in your work? I really like it. I find it very interesting because they're obviously massive, but the moment you put them on the wall, you're referencing abstraction in the dimensions of it being so massive and you're kind of having to attack it, really. But then it also has this decorative thing going on. So it's like there's already quite an interesting duality, which I think has gender kind of underpinning those two types of language. So I want to talk about your use of light and your use of colour in your work. It's so strong and the different kind of dark tones and the light tones that you create are just so dramatic. You know, it's as though there's a kind of electric light in some of it and it's just mind-blowing how you create it I mean what do you kind of really want to set out with creating these light effects in your work well I think light is a really good way of binding together a painting if I'm wanting to bring in lots of different things so I prime with white and then I do sort of a wash of yellow over the top of it so and then I wipe that back in places where I want it to be really bright and so the light shines in and bounces off the white and I quite like that idea because it's not like you're creating an illusion. It really is light. There's something kind of like real about it, which is quite nice. I started using the yellow over the really bright primer after looking at Turner's work, which has the most incredible sense of light kind of glowing from the back. And I just really love the idea that as they're getting older, the paint on the top is fading or thinning out and the white's showing through more. So they're getting brighter and brighter as time goes by. And I <gasps> love the idea that a painting would just kind of live like that. That's so interesting. So now I'd love to talk to you about the Venice paintings, which is your new exhibition at Victoria Miro that everyone is very excited about. Tell me about this. How did it come about? How was living in Venice and being amongst all the Tiepolos and everything? Summer of 2019, I spent 11 weeks in Venice, living and working in Venice. And it was just amazing because Venice is this incredible time capsule of 18th century art and architecture. And it was really like, being in the 18th century and getting a really good taste of what it would have felt like. I think the light in Venice is really special because it's on an island and you've got all the water around it and so much of the light is reflective, what is reflected up from the water and sort of bounces off the coloured buildings and it's just a very beautiful, rich light. And tell us about your studio out there. Yeah, this studio is incredible. It's huge. It's about four times the size of my space here. 
and it's right at the south side of the island where it's really quiet and it looked across the water across the Jadeka so all you could hear from it was just like the lapping of water and the light was amazing I think because so much of it's made up of reflection sort of amplified so it changes very fast and I think it's very colorful and kind of bouncy so it was amazing to have access to all of these sort of beautiful places that had the Tiepolo paintings in the places where they were painted and to be able to see Veronese's paintings and to see how one had influenced the other and to know that a particular church was where Vivaldi composed a particular piece of music. It's just this incredibly rich history with so many different parts of culture kind of interweaving. So I made an oval painting based on this amazing ceiling in the church of the Pieta, which is where Vivaldi composed some of his music and taught. And the ceiling is this beautiful watery blue and it felt very Venetian in its color. But I think while I was in there and I was thinking about music, because the painting was made in response to the fact that Vivaldi had worked there and it's sort of a celebration of music and it's full of all these different musical instruments. And thinking of that, I began to understand Tiepolo's composition in a more musical way and more as sort of choreography which guides the viewer around it the viewer's eye and the way that you would walk underneath it he has these amazing sort of fluffy clouds that are filled with figures they're sort of very densely packed and then you sort of ping off up a trumpet or up a spear or something into the space and onto another little island of information and then you end up kind of spinning off on an angel up in the air and, and you have these kind of slow moments of suspense before the kind of the rhythm picks up again. It felt a lot like being in Venice and, and the pace of Venice where you're walking down the streets and there are so many winding bits and then you have to cross the water and suddenly everything slows down and then you're back on the street again. It was amazing to be able to see the way that just the architecture of Venice and what it is to live in Venice and the way that's influenced Tiepolo's paintings and the, and the composition of them and the colours would change throughout the day as well because you've usually got a window on one side or both sides of the building and it depends where the sun is on how it shines across and lights up different parts of the ceiling. How important is light in your work and can you talk a bit about how you have all these different aspects of light in your work? Well I think light is a really good tool for unifying lots of different elements and it's something I established right at the beginning of my process because it does just help work out where things go. And I think light is really important for capturing that kind of fairy tale feeling that the Rococo has. And I think it really kind of draws you in, sucks you in as a viewer. So it's always been really important in my work. And it was amazing being in Venice and looking at the light there and the way that it reflects off the water. And, and you can sort of see the ripples of the water on the ceiling. And it just seemed like this living thing. You know, you've been talking a lot about Watteau and Fragonard and everyone, but you know, this is Italy. I mean, did Italy have a Rococo of its own? Yes, it did. I think Venice is such an interesting place to be for that because Venice in 18th century was the peak of playfulness. Yeah. And, um, All those like carnivals excess. and balls. Yeah. yeah, they were six months long carnival <gasps> in the 18th century. <gasps> oh yeah. my God. Amazing. I'd looked at the Italian Rococo paintings and I hadn't quite understood where they fitted in with the French. I really loved them and I'd looked at them a bit on the residency. Who are we talking about? Tiepolo here? Yeah, Tiepolo particularly. I'd okay. say he's my main, my main guy. Um <laughs> And yeah, it was a really good time just to look at the work and try and understand what the Italian Rococo was, because it still is quite religious compared to the French work, which I think is characterized by a move away from religious subject matter. Yeah, definitely. And oh my gosh, this is such an insight into the history of painting. But I'm also so intrigued as to what you made out there. I mean, what were you looking at specifically? For the paintings I made in Venice, I was mostly looking at 
composition and the idea of dance and the way the eye travels around a painting. So I really wanted it to have this energy and this bounce and a kind of musical zinginess in the gesture. Whereas the French paintings is much more about creaminess and about form and sort of eroticism in the mark. So it's a bit more, I guess, a bit slower and a bit more luxurious. Absolutely. And how do you think this kind of influenced the work that you then eventually made? I mean, how did you decide what to make that when you were out there? Well, those works were sort of research led, I guess. I just really wanted to understand the paintings and go and look and spend time with them. The paintings of Tiepolo. It was kind of using painting as a way of pulling apart these frescoes and, and understanding how they were made and how they were constructed. I think the way it influenced being in Italy, it was surprising to see the way it influenced my colours bringing them back here. That was only when I really noticed it, yeah. comparing them to my other work. Because I think when I'm looking at the French work, because they're often oil paintings, they have a kind of yellow glaze or a yellow sheen. I don't yes. know if it's because they've aged a tiny bit, but the ones in Venice are much bluer and like much cooler. Mm. No, they really are. And I mean, did you use this opportunity to kind of play with scale or anything as well? The big paintings for the show are smaller than the big paintings I normally make. But because the studio was so massive, they actually... I don't know, it sort of threw me off. So when you're, I mean, the Tiepolos that you saw in Venice, I mean, they're mainly on ceilings. I mean, how was this experience kind of being under a Tiepolo? How does that make you feel? It was amazing because I'd mostly seen them in reproductions or only seen them for sort of a day at a time when I'd been on holiday there. And it was great to be able to go back every day and just walk under them. And each time it's so different, the different angles you're looking at them from and different things are revealed and the colours feel totally different depending on where you're standing. Because a lot of them were site specific and he yeah. painted them with the direction of the light in mind. Oh my gosh, wow. It's incredible. Um, <laughs> if only you were born 400 years I ago. Know, right? Um <laughs> Well, no, not really. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's just so valuable to be able to look at them over and over again. And at first, I think I was sort of shoehorning his work into what I knew about the French. And then I went and saw the amazing oval ceiling in the Santa Maria della Visitazione, which is where Vivaldi taught and composed. And just knowing that and thinking about the music while I was in there, it all sort of made sense to me suddenly. And I began to understand his work as it's like choreography and walking under that ceiling is phenomenal. You move from the little islands and then there's like a trumpet or something that makes you move on to the next section. And then there's an angel and you kind of have this moment of suspension and the different pacing of the different sections is so musical. And I think I began to think more about the way, the dynamics of looking at a painting. And that was really important to the work I made there. I think that's like the most important thing that I learned. That's so interesting. Also, just this idea of music, because, you know, you mentioned right at the beginning that one of your paintings was actually based on a Katy Perry song. It's interesting that kind of Evaldi and Katy Perry, you should blend these such kind of high and low pop cultures in your work. Yeah, I just I like to have loads of different things whether it's like a youtube clip or a piece of music i think it all helps me pin what i'm trying to achieve the, the kind of more elusive thing that i can't quite put into words before i make a painting and it's all there and quite helpful so when these works do get to a gallery space and they've been in this studio that you know it looks over the judeca you get the light rippling effect onto the ceiling i mean how do you want people to experience them in the gallery well, I hope you get a sense of the things that I've been researching, the play and the richness of Venice. But I'm I'm excited to see the way they look. And I think that my work, because it's sort of figurative and abstract, it always does something slightly funny when it's put in a white cube in that it moves slightly more towards abstraction. And I think because in my studio, I'm surrounded by all of the imagery all the time. It sort of exists in this 
18th century Venetian context at the moment. And it'll be interesting to see how the abstract things kind of come to the fore in a white cube space. And as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests if there's a female artist from now or from history who you would like to meet who's in your studio right now, who would it be and what would you say to them? I would really love to meet Lucia Scavage because I think she is the most incredible painter. I think no one uses colour like her and I'd love to have a lesson and learn everything she has to say about colour. That's such a good one. Thank you so much, Flora. Thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to the 26th episode of the Great Woman Artists podcast with the brilliant Flora Yuknovich. It was such an incredible insight to hear her thoughts on paint, her beginnings, influences, references, and of course, discuss her exhibition, which is able to view online via Victoria Miro Gallery's Vortic VR platform. I will share the link in the show notes so you can see. This episode was sound edited by the great Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying these episodes, I would be so grateful grateful if you were to leave a review on apple podcasts as it helps people find us and of course thank you for listening to the great women artists podcast with me katie hessel